So tonight we want to uh, kind of look at the focus, uh, particularly of this teaching, of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Uh, last time in our first session, we talked about the person and the deity of the Holy Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, and we discussed in that teaching as well kind of the three different relationships that we can have and experience with the Holy Spirit, that uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with us and he can be with us, that the Holy Spirit can be in us, that is indwelling our lives. And Jesus also referred to, uh, as we saw, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit coming upon us, that is, coming upon our lives for power, for service, and uh, to enable us. And, and in a sense, tonight, it's almost as if in this teaching, we're kind of looking at the first of those three uh, relationships or experiences that a person can have with the Holy Spirit, that is, prior to the Holy Spirit indwelling us and being in our lives, a part of our lives, uh, the Holy Spirit is with us among the world, uh, in his ministry among the world, trying to draw us into a saving relationship and a personal relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. Again, uh, as we look at this uh, teaching, again, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and that's kind of specifically what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, two predominant things I think you can say sort of up front in regards to what the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is. And, and that is, number one, foremost, to reveal mankind's need for salvation uh, through faith in Jesus. And that really is what we'll spend the predominant amount of our time talking about because I really believe that is the predominant and primary ministry of the Spirit of God among the world. And that is, again, to reveal mankind's need for salvation through Jesus. And we'll see that in John chapter 16. In fact, if you want to turn there to make your way there, that's where we're going to uh, predominantly focus in on that aspect from John 16. And then secondarily, and we'll just kind of tie this up at the end and just set it before you. We won't make a whole lot of comment about it. But I think a secondary ministry that we see of the Holy Spirit among the world is that he also secondarily is seeking to restrain the full measure of evil on the earth. Uh, and that is certainly a part of the ministry presently of the Spirit of God among the world. Uh, is in the same way he works in the believer to convict us of sin and to seek to get us to walk in holiness and godliness. And we'll talk about that in regards when we look at teachings about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, what he's doing in us as Christians. Uh, among the world, the Spirit of God is also at work trying to restrain the full measure of evil and the tide, you can almost say the tsunami uh, of evil and wickedness that wants to be unleashed upon the world and will ultimately be unleashed upon the world uh, in the last days. But right now, the Spirit of God among our world is trying to restrain evil and he is holding back that tide of evil and ungodliness. But first of all, we want to look here in John chapter 16, looking at the words of Jesus. Uh, and Jesus here in John 16, again, referring to the Holy Spirit in this term of the helper. We looked at that last time from John 14, where Jesus said there to us, I'm going to pray the Father and he's going to give you another helper to abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, again, the paraclete, the helper who comes alongside. And again, Jesus was assuring the disciples that, look, I am departing. I'm going to ascend back to the Father, but I'm not going to abandon you. Remember, he told them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans because when I ascend back to the Father, it's at that point I'm then going to send the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, as the agent on the earth to enable us, to indwell us, to help us. And he then becomes our helper in order to have a relationship with God and to be able to live a godly life. So again, Jesus using that term, and I love that term for the Holy Spirit, that he is a helper, that he's an ever-present helper, that God is there to help us in our relationship with him and to live out the godly life he calls us to in our relationship with the Lord. So again, Jesus using that same terminology here in John 16, he's talking about the Spirit when he refers to the Helper. Look with me in verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage. Again, he's reminding them, it's your advantage that I go away. He's going to ascend back into heaven after he raises from the dead. He'll spend a short period of time on the earth afterwards in his glorified body, and then he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. But he says, look, it's actually to your advantage. 
that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, then I will send him to you. He reinforces this many times. Verse 8, here's again the point. And when he has come, he will, notice, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the first thing Jesus clearly gives us uh, teaching and doctrinal understanding about in regards to the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit among the world as I said at the beginning, is to reveal mankind in the world, to reveal mankind's sin and our need for salvation through the person of Jesus. Again, the Bible tells us in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires, it says, for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God, what's your desire? What what does God desire? What's, I wish I knew what God desired. Well, the Bible is real clear about certain things God desires. And one thing we can always know God desires, which is also a great reminder of something that we know we can always pray and know we're praying in perfect accordance with the will of God. And 1 John says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us and we will have the petitions that we've asked of him. We may not always get the petitions answered in the time frame or the way or the, you know, the, the, the process that we think it would come about. But God says, when you pray according to my will, one of the promises, not only do I hear prayers according to my will, but God says, I guarantee you, you will ultimately have those requests. And again, the Bible gives us great truths like 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires all men to be saved. I can know that it's the desire of God to save everyone, uh, that that's his desire. And Peter says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So again, God doesn't want people to perish. It's not his will that people perish and go to hell. If people reject Jesus Christ, will they go to hell? Yes. But I can know it's not God's will. It's God's will, God's preference, his heart, his desire is that people would be saved. And he says here that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. And what's the truth that God desires men to come to a knowledge of? All mankind, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, that they are sinners before a holy God, despite who they are, what they think of themselves, and that the way to experience the forgiveness of sin and God's salvation is to come to his son, Jesus Christ, to put our faith and our trust in him and to ask him to save us, to spare us from our sinfulness and to give us the gift of eternal life. And Jesus said the same thing in a sense in his own words, John three sixteen to 18. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Very clear. Now, we know as well the Bible in balance teaches us, Jesus said in John 6.44 this statement, and listen very closely. Jesus said in John 6.44, Yet no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we know it's God's desire for everyone to be saved. God's made it possible through what he's done for us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, so that it's available for everybody to freely be saved. We know that's his heart and plan. And yet then Jesus says, but yet no one can come to me to be saved. He says, unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, the question I set before you is this. How does the father then draw us to Jesus to get saved. How does that happen so that we might experience salvation? The answer is what we're talking about tonight. The way the Father draws us to Jesus that we might be saved is through the present and personal work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the world. It's through the ministry of the Spirit of God among the world that we are drawn to by the Father to Jesus to experience salvation. 
One man said there can be no spiritual conversion without spiritual conviction. You know, there are people who may pray a sinner's prayer. There may be people who try and clean up their act and get a little more religious. Or, or, but there can truly be no conversion of the eternal destiny of a person's soul, which makes them a new creation and makes them truly born again in their spirit and come alive to God, unless there is first spiritual conviction. The Spirit of God by the prompting of the Father God drawing people to the Son of God that they might experience that salvation. So we have the work of the Holy Spirit among the world. Jesus is talking about here in verse 7, again saying, it's your advantage I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper won't come to you. He says, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So again, we talked in depth last time. The Holy Spirit is an ever-present helper to the child of God. One of the many ways that he helps you and I as God's children is to assist us as we let ourselves be used as instruments in the evangelization and the conversion of souls of other people like us who need to be saved in the same way that we were once drawn to Christ and saved as well. So one of the ways the Holy Spirit becomes a helper to the Christian because he uses you and I, again, which quite honestly shocks me. God could use angels. Do you think they'd be a much more effective evangelism team? <laughs> I mean, just if, if you want to get your message across, I mean, angels seem like they'd be so much more compliant, so much more powerful. Uh, you know, God could just write the message across the sky. You could rip open the heavens and say peekaboo and, and just freak people out. But God actually condescends to actually entrust the message of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to present the gospel and to offer people an opportunity to be saved primarily through you and I. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the Holy Spirit of God is working in the lives of people among the world in many ways independent from you and I as Christians too. I don't think God puts all his eggs in my basket or in your basket. I think he's way wiser than that. But he lets us share in it. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit becomes a helper in our lives is to assist us to fulfill the great commission that Jesus called us to, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And we'll talk more about that specifically in regards to his work in our lives as believers. But again, verse 8 is where we really hone in on this idea of what's the Spirit of God doing among the world. It says, when he has come, he, verse 8, Jesus said, the Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So here we're, we're told right up front the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. Verse 8 zeroes right in on it. Jesus uses the word conviction among the world. Now keep in mind, when, when Jesus talks about the world, the term he uses here in the Greek, it's cosmos. He's not referring to the, the physical earth, that is the planet itself. What he's referring to when he uses the term world is the present world system and all the human inhabitants that are on this ball of dirt that we call earth or our world. He's talking about the human beings represented in this present world system and our world is spiritually dead. Our world is in a lost condition of sin and our world system and everyone a part of it who's outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ is dominated by sin and by Satan. Again, if you're a note taker, if nothing else, just take note to listen of what the Bible speaks of reminding the believer of his state and condition prior to salvation and conversion. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3, listen to how we're described prior to our converted state. Ephesians 2 1 to 3, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we were spiritually dead. We had no spiritual life in us. There's no spiritual spark in any human being, contrary to what people want to believe about themselves. God says, no, you're dead. You're dead. Spiritually, we're born dead. We're sinful. There is no spiritual life in us until God awakens that life in us when his spirit enters into our life and quickens our spirit. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He says, in which you once walked according to, notice, the course of this world. This world is being directed by a different course than the course of a child of God. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Again, the Bible says 
that prior to conversion, we were literally sons of disobedience. Jesus goes so far to literally say that we were children of the devil. That God sees it black and white. You're either a child of God or truly harsh as... Child of the devil? I'm not a child of the devil. Well, I, I didn't say that. It, Jesus said that. Jesus literally said, either you are born again and then you become a child of God at that moment, or you're literally a child of the devil spiritually from God's perspective. And again, the Bible reinforces this, that we were living according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just as others. So that's the picture, the black canvas that the Bible paints to say, look, you need to realize that's what you and I were like as Christians prior to our conversion. We were spiritually dead. We had no life and genuine relationship with God. We could have been as religious as anybody else under the sun and done routines and rituals and observances, said prayers, read Bible verses, quoted Bible verses. But there was no spiritual life in us. And as well, he says that we were truly being directed in a way whereby the devil was manipulating our sinful flesh and we were guided and governed and directed by, like everyone else, there's a spiritual current in our world that just directs the system of our world. It's, you know, it's styles, it's fads, it's entertainments, it's philosophies, it's, it's preferences. And we were living on the animal plane. We lived according to our own desires, our fleshly wants, our preferences. Basically, what we wanted, we did. What we desired, we went after. And the reason why is because we were slaves. We didn't have realize that the, the shackles are invisible. You know, I, for years I didn't realize I was in bondage, but the truth of the matter is I was spiritually enslaved and living according to a, a, a cruel dictator who was dominating, manipulating my life spiritually. And that was our condition and is the condition of the world and those who don't know Jesus Christ. So the ministry, therefore, Jesus says, of the spirit among the world is one of, notice he uses the term convict, conviction. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world. That word convict there in the Greek means to convince, to rebuke, to tell of a fault, or to pronounce a verdict. So what the Holy Spirit does among the unsaved world is he performs the work of convicting people's hearts of their true spiritual condition. He works in their life in such a way whereby he can ultimately help them, together with hearing what God's trying to say to them, pronounce a verdict upon their own spiritual condition and to be convinced of the reality that they truly do need Jesus Christ in their life and to be saved from their sins and to have their eternal destiny changed. He shows them their fault of trying to be righteous in their own religious efforts and he allows them to come to the realization whether they think they're okay and their sin is self-righteousness or, or whether maybe they're just, you know, way to the other than the spectrum and just morally caught up in all... Listen, sin is sin before a holy God. So, you know, whether you're the, the a, a drug addict, prostitute, you know, mass murderer or whether you're just a self-righteous, arrogant, greedy, you know, liar... Uh, Sin is sin before a holy God. And the Spirit of God works in the life of a person prior to their salvation to pronounce a verdict in their heart and conscience that, listen, you're guilty before God. There's a holy God, and you don't measure up. And your sin is going to have consequences. And he also convinces the unsaved person of the opportunity, however, of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins because of God's love and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And he also convinces them as well, listen, yes, you're guilty, but God's resolved that. He loves you just like you are, and he's made a way for those sins to be forgiven. He's made a way for you to have access into heaven and a relationship with God, and he reveals that spiritual need of Jesus as a Savior and Lord and those eternal realities that a person needs to come to grips with to ultimately experience salvation in their life. Interesting, three times in this section of John, Jesus here calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. I find that interesting. 
in John chapter 14, verse 27, in 1526, Jesus says, The Helper, when he comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of what? Me. Jesus says, this is what the Spirit of truth does. He tells people about me. He talks to people about me. That's what the Spirit does. He talks to people about Jesus and where they are truly in relation to Jesus. He continually brings it back to the main point. You know, the Spirit of God is not necessarily concerned about talking to people about prophecy, talking to people about you know this or that or politics. The Spirit of God is interested in talking to people about where are you at with Jesus. Let's bring it back to Jesus. The Spirit of God's prompting and talking to people about Jesus. And again, it's John 16, verse 13. Jesus reiterates the same thing. The Spirit of truth, he says, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. Verse 14, and he will glorify me. Again, the Spirit of truth. And what is the truth Jesus is wanting to be conveyed as the Spirit's ministry goes forth, the Spirit seeks to bring each person to a clear understanding of the truth regarding salvation and eternal realities and spiritual things for their own soul. I think spiritual conviction is portrayed incredibly in Acts chapter 2. We're there in Acts chapter 2. Remember, the Spirit of God is poured out at the early church, at the birth of the church, and Peter is testifying to the crowd about Jesus once the Spirit is poured out. And listen to what we read, Acts 2, verse 36 to 38. Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? To which Peter responded to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a perfect portrayal of what the conviction of the Spirit of God looks like in the world in the unconverted soul of a person or persons. It says, when they heard the Spirit of God's ministry was moving among them, and it says they were cut to the heart. That's a great description. Their heart was pricked. Their heart was ripped open. The idea is God arrested them and caused them to feel an overwhelming sense of guilt of their own human sinfulness and to sense the reality of, oh my goodness. You know, they, they, it says they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? They weren't looking to give excuses or justifications. They just wanted an answer at that moment. And, you know, when the Spirit of God truly convicts a human heart, that's where they come to. Complete humility and it's just, what's the answer? Like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 where he says says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> just, just, I'm convinced. What do I got to do? Just anything. Tell me. What do I do? I, ju I need to be saved. What do I have to do to be saved? And this is, again, what the Spirit of God is seeking to do. And I want to encourage you to trust me, He's able to do it. We just need to pray that the Holy Spirit would do what Jesus said that He would do. A lot of times we're trying to do what the Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to be doing in people's lives. And we get disheartened and frustrated and all the because we think, well, if I just, maybe it was the wrong verse or the wrong set of verses or my presentation or, and the reality is, is listen, the Spirit of God is fully sufficient and capable. And I'm not saying He doesn't use our lives, I'm not, you know, in balance to what I said earlier, He does use us. But the Spirit of God is more than capable to wrestle with people's hearts and cut people to the heart and in the right hour and right way, he ultimately can do that work of conviction. And Jesus mentions in these verses here three areas of conviction which the Holy Spirit accomplishes. He says he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And then in verses 9 through 11, he expounds upon or further expands what he means by convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and and judgment. The first thing he says is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world, verse 9, Jesus says, of sin 
because they do not know me. So he convicts the world of sin. Now, when we hear that word sin, typically right away we think about what? Violating the commands of God, uh, doing things that we shouldn't do, and, and, and we start to picture the list of all the things that we think uh, or the things that we did or the things that we still do or the things that we still think that, that we know are kind of out of line with what holy God would say is right and wrong. And so this list comes into our mind of anything that violates or displeases God that's wrong or failures. Yet here, notice the word is in the singular. He's not talking about sins. He's talking about sin. And more than that, he's referring to one main thing, and that is, according to what Jesus says, the sin of not believing upon Jesus. It's that sin predominantly that the Spirit of God is seeking to convict men about. The sin of not believing upon Jesus. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible's very clear that we are all sinners, right? We know that. The Bible tells us, Romans 3, there's no difference among any person. We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. Here's God's holy, righteous standard as human beings we may do a little better than each other here, there, in different categories, but the bottom line is nobody hits the mark. The standard is perfection, righteousness, holiness, and everybody falls short of the standard. It doesn't matter who you are, how much you've done or haven't done. or Nobody meets the standard. There's no difference. It's commonality. The point being, God says, look, there's no perfect person. We all fail, thought, word, and deed. And that makes us all sinful. We just prove that what the Bible says is true of us. We prove we're sinners. We don't become sinners. We're sinful from birth. And we just prove it as we live our lives. The Bible says we're all like sheep. We go astray. By nature, we read earlier that we're all, therefore, because of our sin, children of wrath. So we're all sinners. But the wonderful news we know is that God loved us enough that he made an effort and he accomplished what was necessary to rescue us from that sinful condition because Jesus Christ came to become our Savior. That God in his love sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to live a sinless, perfect life as a man, as our representative. And then after living the sinless, righteous requirements of the law, Jesus in a substitutionary way said, I'll tell you what, I'm now going to take the punishment for you as a guilty sinner I'll die for your sins upon the cross and suffer the punishment for your sin as mankind, as guilty sinners, and then I will exchange and give to you my righteousness that I accomplished and fulfilled as a man living in holiness before my Father so that you then can be acceptable and have access into heaven. And this is an incredible plan that God designs in his love for us. 1 John 2.2 2 says Jesus himself is the propitiation, the idea is the satisfactory payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, the Bible clearly assures us Jesus has provided total redemption. His substitutionary death and resurrection has provided now a pathway to have our sins forgiven and to be reunited with God. So that being said, now... The one issue, really, bottom line, becomes this. What is a person going to do with Jesus Christ? That really becomes the bottom line issue. Because we're all sinners, and there is one Savior who has come and made a perfect pathway for us to be forgiven of sin, to be reunited with God forever, and that one person is Jesus so the one issue really becomes, what will any person do with Jesus Christ? Again, what we read earlier, Jesus' own words in John 3, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent him so that the world could be saved through him. So whether we accept Jesus or we reject Jesus is truly what we will be eternally accountable for when we each stand before the throne of our Creator and our Maker in regards to our eternal destiny. So one of the first testimonies of the Holy Spirit to the world is that they need Jesus as their Savior. Not just that they're sinners and that they need to be saved, but that they need Jesus as their Savior 
And there is one exclusive way to come to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Again, Acts 4, Peter said, Nor is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 9 when he says he'll convict the world of sin. And what sin? Because they don't believe in me. What Jesus is conveying here is the spirit of God's ministry is to convict the world of the sin that when each soul stands before God. Please hear me in this. When, when each soul stands before God, it will not be the accumulation of our sins that affects our eternal destiny. The thing that will affect our eternal destiny and could cause a person to be eternally damned would be the sin of rejecting God's provision to pay for the penalty of the accumulation of all their sins as a human being. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's not the accumulation of our sins that sends us to hell. It is the sin, singular, of rejecting God's one plan and provision for the payment and the forgiveness of our sins in rejecting the person of his son Jesus by, for whatever reason, refusing to believe in him as the only means of salvation. God's made a way for everybody to be equally forgiven and to have free access to go to heaven by the grace of God and the free gift of Jesus Christ. But the important thing is we, if we refuse to believe and respond to that truth and reject that that is the way, Jesus is the only way, then we commit a sin which is much more grievous. And I believe that rejecting of Jesus as God's way of salvation, I believe myself that is what constitutes what Jesus referred to as the unpardonable sin that consigns a person to hell. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against, interesting, the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Again, the blasphemy of the Spirit. To reject what? The testimony of the Holy Spirit who is saying to the conscience of a person continuously, listen, you're a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. But God sent a Savior for you. And you can't save yourself and the one person that can save you is God's son, Jesus Christ. And you have to believe that. And you have to respond to that in a trust and a reception of his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of your soul. And, and to reject that testimony of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Savior, to reject that voice and testimony of the Spirit, ultimately into the hour of a person's death, that. I believe, then becomes the unpardonable sin that God cannot forgive and is what consigns a person to eternal damnation. It's that sin of not believing upon me, Jesus says. It reminds me of Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is preaching to the religious leaders about their rejection of Jesus. He says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a sobering statement. You always resist the Holy Spirit because let us remember among the unsaved world, the Holy Spirit is wrestling and I can't emphasize enough wrestling with the hearts and souls of human beings, wrestling with their conscience regarding the person of Jesus, speaking to them about their need to be saved and how Jesus loves them and Jesus wants to save them and he wants to be involved and enter in their lives. Yet the sobering reality is, is an unsaved soul can resist the testimony of the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart about the person of Jesus. Remember Saul and his conversion? When he was converted the day of his conversion, remember Jesus added into him? He said, Saul, it's hard for you. Boy, I've been watching you. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. What was he saying? That he saw for an extended period of time that something was goading Saul on the inside. What was goading him in his conscience? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was goading him in his conscience, and he, he was resistant. He was kicking against it, and that goad is the, the sharp end of the stick that they would use to poke the animal in its rear end to get it to move in the direction that it was supposed to go. 
and to kick against the goads was painful for the animal because it it would hurt them because they were resisting what if they would just comply with the thing that they were supposed to do and it ultimately would hurt themselves. And Jesus said, I saw, man, I've been watching. You've been kicking against the goads. I've been, the Spirit's been goading you in your heart and conscience to respond to Jesus and yet you've been wrestling against that. Again, all the way back to the book of Genesis. God said regarding the ungodly world in Noah's day, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Again, there comes a time when God's spirit, though he strives and strives and strives and strives, ultimately God will not strive with the spirit with someone and with this world and this generation forever. At a certain point, God ultimately in his righteousness has no other ultimatum other than judge. So Jesus says currently, however... By the grace of God, we're still in that season. Currently, he says, the Spirit is seeking to convict the world of sin, and the sin is that people won't believe in Jesus. They won't come to Jesus. Secondly, he says, the Holy Spirit, verse 10, he says, convicts the world of righteousness. And in regards to convicting the world of righteousness, he says, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. So, here Jesus relates his ascension going back to the Father in connection with righteousness. Now, why does he connect those two things together? Well, very simply this, because Jesus' ascension back to the Father declared and demonstrated very clearly what God required for man's acceptance into heaven. As we said a few minutes ago, God was verifying when he accepted Jesus after he lived his life as a man on the earth, when he accepted Jesus back into heaven, God was verifying that is what I require to accept a man into heaven. That's the standard right now. You've just seen it in my son as he received his son into heaven. It was to be sinless, to be perfect. The Bible teaches us that Jesus knew no sin. In him there was no sin. He was attempted in all points like us, but he was sinless. He didn't fail like us. So... As we consider that, the life of Jesus was sinless perfection, and if what God requires is sinless perfection, uh-oh, we're all in really big trouble because nobody can live like Jesus lived. So that becomes a real problem. Now, unfortunately, as I said, some people wrongly, and it's a deception of the devil in their mind, and it's the pride of life, and it's just self-deception, some people wrongly think that they're okay enough to be right with God to be accepted into heaven. Sometimes I cringe. It's almost a greater danger when somebody is self-righteous, utterly religious, or a pretty moral person rather than somebody who is like a reprobate uh, living in total immorality out on the street. You know, uh, well, you could deem to be all that. Because those people, they, they're honest about themselves. Yeah. I'm a mess. I am. There ain't nobody as wicked as me. You don't have to convince them that they're a sinner. Do you understand what I'm saying? And there, sadly, are people. You know, one man said before that religion is like the opiate of the devil to deceive people that they are righteous enough to be acceptable before God. And Jesus says here, one of the things the Spirit must convict people of is the righteous requirement that it requires to go into heaven. And he has to literally convince people, listen, you're measuring with the wrong standard. You can't get into heaven with, with nothing of your own righteousness. It requires the righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and we have to receive that righteousness in the great exchange that God makes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, read Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. It's all about how the whole world is guilty and by the deeds of the law, no flesh can be justified in God's sight. You know, we can keep every little law, ritual, religious requirement. God says, you can't justify yourself with that. Again, if that was enough, God would have never sent Jesus. If we could do something to make ourselves right before God, it's really strange that God would send his sinless, perfect dearly beloved son into the world and let him be beaten and spit on and abused and mistreated the reason why is because there's nothing we could do and god saw that and god demonstrated that by sending jesus and there is what the bible teaches a righteousness of god that we receive by faith 
This is what Paul talked about in Romans 10. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Listen to what he says. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. He has to convict people, not only of, 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 of the fact that he's the Savior, but he has to convict people, listen, the reason you need me to save you is because your own righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. We need the righteousness of Jesus to be acceptable to enter into heaven. And it's one of the things that the Spirit of God is convicting the unsaved world about, to try and show them that they can only come to God once they receive the righteousness of Jesus. And when you and I accept Jesus, on top of accepting him for the forgiveness of our sins, we're also accepting his righteousness. Lord, I'm unrighteous, but it's his righteousness that he gives to us. He puts his righteousness into your bank account as a sinner, and then God deals with you in the same way he would deal with his son. Because positionally, by faith, he sees you in that righteous robed garment of his son, Jesus Christ. So another thing the Spirit's convicting of. Thirdly, he says that he also convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is condemned. So the third and final thing we see the Holy Spirit convicts the world of, Jesus says, is of judgment. Now again, just like earlier with the world's sin, when you hear the word judgment right away, your mind is drawn to think of what? Eternal judgment damnation, the lake of fire, and, and that the Spirit of God's convicting people about hell. And let me just say, I think that is a valid part of the Spirit's conviction. I'm not diminishing that the Holy Spirit does convict people of the reality of hell, of the fact that God is going to judge righteously and he should. However, that being said, though eternal torment and hell and the judgment of God is a real part of the conviction of the Spirit, that's not specifically what Jesus in context is talking about here. Notice here that what Jesus is talking about is the judgment, he says, of the ruler of this world having been judged. Now, who's the ruler of this world? Well, the Bible teaches us it's the devil. It's Satan. Again, Adam, when you studied the Garden of Eden rightfully, judicially forsook his dominion over the earth. God put him on the earth and he said, have dominion over the earth. And what did Adam do? He disobeyed God and he at the same time also, in a sense, submitted to the suggestion of the devil and in so doing, he rebelled against God and he, in a sense, put himself under submission to the devil's authority and judicially, in a sense, that title deed and dominion over the earth that man was supposed to have to be here as a steward, we forfeited that over to the devil in a judicial sense, which meant that Jesus, part of the reason he had to come, was to come and to reconcile the mess that Adam mistake, made a mistake with and to redeem the title deed to the earth back over to himself so that he could steal away then that authority that the devil had over humanity as the result of Adam's great mistake. So, Again, 1 John 3, 8, listen to what it says. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So one of the main reasons Jesus came in his efforts and his accomplishments on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of the devil, the authority of the devil over our lives judicially. He broke and defeated that power. Colossians 2 talks about how in the cross, Jesus triumphed over the devil and the powers of darkness. So Jesus righteously defeats and takes away from the devil his power, listen, to hold mankind captive. Jesus broke that power through his work on the cross and purchased our freedom. So the Satan's authority over people in the world, hear me, it's a usurped authority. And the only reason he retains authority over their life is because they have not, knowing the truth in humility, submitted themselves to the rulership and authority of Jesus Christ in their life, whereby they would have victory and deliverance. So they stay under the ruler of this world because they don't understand that they can be delivered from that. They can be delivered from the power of sin over their life. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the Holy Spirit, one of his testimonies 
in the world, one of the things he's trying to say to the world to convince them of is the reality of this. Listen, you don't have to be captive and live in bondage to sin. You can be free. Jesus can deliver you. He can set you free. You can live differently. And if you turn to Jesus, you can be a new creation. You don't have to live captive to the ruler of this world. You don't have to live enslaved and enshackled to your life. You can be liberated and live differently. Again, Romans 6 describes and promises how Jesus offers this to us. It says that through Jesus we can walk in newness of life. That sin doesn't have to reign over our mortal body so that we obey its lust. That sin doesn't have to have dominion over us. That we don't have to be slaves of sin. That we can be set free from sin. These are all promises in Romans 6 about the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that if we become united to Jesus, that these can be our experience. So Jesus says one of the things the Spirit's trying to convince the world about is to convince people, listen... You can be set free from the power of sin. You don't have to be in bondage. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over you. There's deliverance, liberation. You can be set free, whether it's from you know, some life-dominating habit or whether it's just from just you know, an issue of anger or, you know, or of, of greed or of arrogance or of pride or all these things that we can still become in bondage to. Jesus says, listen, the Holy Spirit's trying to convey to you if the sun sets you free, you can be free indeed. And one of the wonderful things the Spirit's trying to convince people of and convict the world of is not just that judgment's coming. Yeah, that's true. But even better than that, the devil's been judged. And you don't have to live like a slave. You can have liberty and deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the main predominant ministries, again, of the Spirit of God in the world is to reveal to the world that Jesus wants to save them and needs to. Turn quickly to 2 Thessalonians 2. And again, no time real for a whole lot of exposition, as I said at the beginning, but I just want to point out to you another ministry that I believe the Holy Spirit does in the world, and that's to restrain evil in the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, this chapter here, 2 Thessalonians 2, if you read and study it, is talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about how in the day of the Lord, during the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist will ultimately be revealed. This individual who, in a sense, uh, will literally, it seems, be indwelled by Satan himself and have the powers of satanic you know, darkness and evil at work in his life. Look, Second Thessalonians 2, just read from verse 3 down. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, won't come unless the falling away, a great apostasy which will take place, comes first. And the man of sin, this is referring to the Antichrist as we know him, is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worship, so that he sits as God, in the temple of God, there will be a rebuilt temple. So we look for that on the horizon of indicating we're drawing close to the last days. He'll set himself up as an idol in the temple of God there in Jerusalem, showing himself that he is now God to be worshipped. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is, look at this word, restraining. He says, you know what's restraining, what's holding back the spirit of Antichrist, which will ultimately, in a sense, embody the Antichrist, you know what's restraining the mystery of lawlessness, the evil current of the devil and demonic forces, so that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery, verse 7, of lawlessness is already at work, only he, notice he, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume ultimately with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, notice, according with the working of Satan. And what does Satan have the ability to do? With all power, signs, and lying wonders. So yes, Satan can do miracles. Be careful. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion, for they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not notice believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here's this description of the revelation of the Antichrist, the time when he will be revealed and he will come to the scene literally and begin his uh, season in a sense of rulership. We know that will be during the time of the seven-year period of tribulation, which I believe will take place after the rapture and the removal of the church. And there's this description of the, the Antichrist, the mystery of lawlessness, the working of Satan with power and signs and lying wonders, this great deception and delusion that will take place because people didn't receive the truth. They'll be very easily duped and deceived. And notice in the midst of that, we have this reference here in verse 6 and 7. He says, you know what's restraining. And he says, the mystery of lawlessness, verse 7, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There is something, or more specifically, someone, it says, who is restraining presently the tsunami of wickedness and evil and demonic influences just overrunning and flooding the current world right now as it is, which will culminate, of course, in the revelation of the Antichrist being embodied and literally exercising his demonic forces and powers on the earth. And it says that someone is restraining that until he is taken out of the way. I personally believe that that is a reference to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling and residing in what? The body of Christ, in Christians. I believe that at the moment we are raptured, where the Spirit of God is predominantly at work in dwelling Christians, Jesus tells us the Spirit lives in us, that we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God is in the church. So when the church is caught up and removed from this earth, and the presence, the powerful, predominant presence of the Spirit of God, which is at work in the lives of Christians, you and I, the church on this earth, is removed from this earth, you want to talk about the lights going out? You, you, you want to talk about, again, what did Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. You are alone, the light of the world. And then all of a sudden, that's removed. And, and he says, that right now is the only thing on this earth that is restraining all of the tsunami of the power of wickedness and the demonic forces and the diabolical influences, which they're at work, right? We see them. And they're increasing. But the Spirit of God is at work in our lives and among us. And the presence of the church and the presence of us as Christians, listen, we are the only thing on this planet restraining all hell from breaking loose on this planet. That's our purpose, to be salt and light. And it's that restraining influence of the Spirit of God among the people of God and His ministry predominantly in that secondary sense not just revealing Jesus to people and seeing people come to Christ, but he's also restraining a tide of evil and ungodliness through our presence here until the church and Christians are raptured and removed.